A trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I appreciate you joining me today. If this is your first experience in Wrong Think, pull up a chair. Make yourself comfortable. I think you're going to find it to be uh, more pleasant than uh, the world will let on that it is. Sadly, though, you don't see a lot of people beating down the door to be known as a wrong thinker. I don't know why that is. There, there's, there's still a little bit of social stigma, but uh, trust me when I tell you it's the right kind of stigma. Because it's really more about seeing the world clearly and independently, challenging the conventional wisdom wherever possible. And strangely enough, we live in a time where that actually matters. Where owning your worldview means you're probably going to have to break, at least uh, not march in lockstep, with everybody else. The cool thing is you're going to find some great people along the way. And uh, as you get to know uh, other folks who have stumbled onto this little uh, broadcast and podcast, hopefully you will find that uh, you are in very good company as we uh, as we look at the world around us, decide what we can do to make it a better place, and above all, revel in wrong think at every turn. Now, this may seem like kind of a strange question, but I want to ask it anyway. Do you remember what normal felt like? Now, see, after this last year, I know there are people going, oh, let me think about that for a minute. I've shared with you on this program uh, a couple of different instances where I've been traveling and I've gone someplace. And this is especially when, when mask mandates were still pretty ubiquitous. You could encounter them just about everywhere. And a couple of times I got to travel and went to places where uh, going to the grocery store, going to a restaurant. I walked in and nobody was wearing a mask. And it shocked me at how utterly normal it felt and that sense of oh i missed this and i think that i'm not the only person who's become um i don't know if conditioned is the right word because that kind of makes it sound like deliberate someone has forced you or has manipulated you into feeling this way but i think we just get used to the way things are and we adapt and we're, we're pretty resilient even in bad circumstances people can become pretty comfortable in fact, uh, truth be told, I think we can become comfortable with outrageous circumstances, like being abused. People become comfortable with that and start to accept it as well. That's just the way things are. That's that's the norm. I remember a uh, an anthropologist and and. Paul, I'm sorry, I forget your last name. Uh, Paul was one of the presenters at a TEDx event where I spoke about nine years ago, and he was remarkable in many ways. He's also an illusionist or a magician, and uh, I think he I think he calls himself a mentalist. But brilliant, brilliant guy. And he made the point that when when an anthropologist or someone who is studying another civilization or uh, another culture, when they land in that new culture. There's only about a two-week window of opportunity for them to really observe what's going on around them, because after two weeks, things start to look familiar. And I want to liken that observation, and I think that's absolutely true. After about two weeks, you know, things are looking pretty normal, even if you're, you know, the new kid in town. 
But I want to liken that to how people react, particularly I'm going to use the masking issue just because I know that's something that's on a lot of people's minds. Um, my wife has a coworker, a wonderful, wonderful lady who um, originally was not really supportive of all the mask mandates, but who made a remark the other day that, you know, I actually am to the point where I feel more comfortable. I, I like to have my mask. It makes me feel safe. And I, don't, I would not take that as a confession. Oh, she's given up. You know, it's, it's just what an interesting observation. She can't be the only person who feels that way. What once was, you know, seen as, okay, well, we'll put the mask on so we can go and do what we got to do, um, has actually become, for some people, kind of a comforting thing. And and they get uncomfortable, some of them do, when, when they see people who aren't wearing masks. My only point here is, is that uh, it's easier than you think to lose track of what normal was like. I got a great article here from Wired.com. This is from Dave McGrogan. And Dave is reminding us we must never forget what it was like to live freely. We must never forget the old normal. Now, he's writing this, I believe he's in, in the U.K., so if, if you hear a few terms or colloquialisms you, you don't immediately recognize, just understand he's writing it from across the pond. But he says, we have been we have now spent over a year in lockdown limbo. Vaccines were supposed to release us by early spring. Matt Hancock promised that after the vulnerable had been vaccinated, the government would cry freedom. Well, he says it's early spring and the vulnerable have more or less all been vaccinated. But Chris Whitty has been back on the airwaves to tell us there will definitely be a third wave of infections. Meanwhile, the head of public health England thinks nothing of saying that we will be wearing masks and obeying social distancing rules for years. And might as well, since, according to her, we've all grown used to it anyway. Isn't that interesting how that works? He says, normal life, the pub, the real pub where you didn't have to wear a mask or produce a certificate to get in, meeting friends for casual coffee, going to work, going to an art gallery or a football match, already seems like a dimly remembered dream. What will be left of those memories if all of this really goes on indefinitely? Particularly if there's an escape variant that evades vaccination or another pandemic comes along. Now, just as a quick aside, there are public officials who are already talking about we're never going back to normal. We are going to be in a permanent state of pandemic. The skeptic in me thinks I don't think they're talking about a pandemic because, no, there are legitimately deadly diseases that we have to avoid and have to take these extraordinary measures to minimize. I think it's more like there's going to be an, an extended or a never ending state of pandemic because people in positions of authority have figured out they can use it to stampede us in the direction of their choosing. And sadly, a lot of people have have gone along. I don't think they're evil and I don't think they're stupid for having gone along with it. I think they just felt like, well, this is the right thing to do at the time and then got used to it and don't quite know how to stand up and assert themselves that uh, enough is enough. Power seekers and opportunists, they see that and they think, ah, you know, this is pretty much a free, this is a blank check for me to uh, to tell you what to do. Now, in the article here, Czech author Milan Kundera begins one of his novels with the observation that the struggle of man against power is the struggle of memory against forgetting. In fact, he wrote this specifically about a tactic of leaders behind the Iron Curtain, airbrushing inconvenient people from photographs so as to cleanse them from the public record. 
More generally, he was making the point that ideologies, all ideologies, rely on the obliteration of history. An ideology simplifies all of the complexity of the world to a few trite principles, and because history is messy and complicated and almost never conforms to this kind of exercise in reduction, the solution is to forget history altogether. This is why so many ideologies have what they call a year zero component in their makeup. It's because they're about ripping things up and starting afresh on a blank state. Well, here the author says lockdownism, the ideology that now dominates public life, is no different. One of its central elements is forgetting the past, including the very recent past. Before 2020, nobody spoke about lockdown, social distancing, the R rate, self-isolation, and so forth. Yet now we talk about these concepts as though they've existed for decades, almost like they're immutable concepts or facts about how we have always dealt with infectious disease, rather than a series of ideas dreamed up on the spur of the moment and imposed in a panic. We're encouraged to forget that things used to be different, that we used to live our lives freely, accepting that there were nasty diseases out there that might kill you if you did, but this was a risk worth taking because the alternative was worse. So imagine going back in time to this moment two years ago, April 2019, and asking somebody whether it would be acceptable to pause children's education, put an end to live music and live sport, prevent people from meeting family members or hugging at a funeral or close businesses for an indefinite period, all in response to a virus which more than 99% of people survive. There would have only been one answer. We all know this. This wasn't how we used to think about these things, but now we're forced to forget. And the author says, look, I have a personal perspective on this because my father died of complications arising from flu back in 2015 when things were different. He was 70. He'd been suffering from a rare degenerative brain condition. He had for some months been effectively unable to eat, speak or move. So he was extremely frail and the flu was simply too much for him. He developed pneumonia and died very shortly afterwards, and this is not at all uncommon. In fact, he says over 25,000 people die from pneumonia in a normal year in the U.K. He says if you're in my father's position, elderly and already very ill, well, the chances are high that that's what's going to finish you off. We've got to take a real quick break here. We're going to come back with more of David McGrogan's essay. In Wired.com, there is a link to it in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Check it out, read it, share it with friends if you'd like. We'll be back after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to my sponsors, including Pure Light. These are truly amazing light bulbs. You can check them out for yourself. Follow the link in the show notes under sponsors. Also, uh, hslammo.com and monticellocollege.org. Wonderful, wonderful people in each and every one of these sponsors, make sure they know that their message is getting to your ears via this program. Even even if you don't need what they have to offer at the moment, at least tell them, hey, I heard about you from Brian so that they know that their message is getting to you. But I think you're going to find they're great people. They have great products. They have great services. Probably worth your time. Again, it's in the show notes at com. 
So I'm sharing this article about uh, we cannot forget the old normal. This is from David McGrogan. was written in Wired. I'm sorry. I've been calling it Wired. I'm sorry. I've been giving you the total wrong thing. SpikedOnline.com. That's <laughs> my bad. It's been a long day. What can I say? But he talks about how easy it is for us to forget what was once normal and to embrace the new normal and to worse uh, believe those who tell us, yeah, we're never going to go back to the old normal. And he talked about his father's death from complications arising from the flu back in 2015. But things were so much different then. And he said, if you were in my father's position, you know, and, you know, we're very frail with a rare degenerative brain condition and for months had been unable to eat or speak or move. Well, the flu gave him pneumonia. He died very shortly afterward. Now, he says, I was very sad about my father's death. Of course, I loved him. He was my dad. What I don't remember is feeling any sense of anger or injustice about the fact that somebody who knows who had evidently passed the flu virus onto him and thereby killed him. The killed is in quotation marks. He says, in those days, 2015 feels like an aeon ago. We didn't think about death in this way. It was just something that happened. And he says, yes, I suppose we all knew in an abstract sense that people can die from viruses they catch from others. But he says, if I had gone around after my father's death, ranting about the irresponsibility of young people going out socializing and allowing kids to go to school and contribute to the spread of the flu, he says, I would rightly have been told to seek help. So he says, my father died because somebody passed a virus on to him. Now, he says, I loved him, but it was his time. And I wouldn't have dreamed of expecting the whole of human society to put itself on hold to save him. But this is how we are, we are enjoined and encouraged to think about the current pandemic. We all must sacrifice our social lives, our jobs, our communities, even our family life, in order to refrain from spreading a virus and thereby inadvertently killing someone's granny. He says we must not forget that we did not used to think about disease in this way. It should be evident to any grown adult that this new way of conceptualizing infection and death is based on a profoundly immature and misanthropic notion that our sociality, the core of our nature as human beings, must be sacrificed in order to avoid an inevitable consequence of nature, infectious disease. Humans must live closely alongside other human beings, and if we don't, we suffer the possibility of inadvertently passing on an infection is a price we pay. And yet this fundamental element of our nature is being pathologized and reconceptualized as an unacceptable risk. And David McGrogan says once that Rubicon has been crossed, it's difficult to know where we will end up. But he says it's a fair assumption that wherever it is, it will be profoundly unpleasant. And whatever fragments of memories of the old normal remain to us, will then be of small consolation indeed. Now, I'm really cautious about, I don't like to share things that are, you know, intended to scare you, okay? This is not scared straight. This is not an attempt to panic you and make you feel like, well, you have to think this or else. And I get that what Dave McGrogan is, is saying here may be hard, and it may be difficult for some people to even entertain the idea, much less accept it. But I think he's right. And I don't think there's recklessness at work here. I think there's there's a broader picture that's being looked at that, unfortunately, we don't get from either official sources or their media enablers who, for whatever reason, have thrown in 
as uh, stenographers pool rather than being watchdogs and, and looking out for the citizens who ostensibly they're trying to keep informed. They're not keeping us informed. They're telling us what to think, and there's a huge difference. We must never forget the old normal. This is from spikedonline.com. It is in the show notes in the Brian, at the thebrianhideshow.com. This is for uh, April 7th, 2021. Now, one of the components, one of the key components of a free society is free movement of its people. There's a great essay on the Foundation for Economic Education's website today called just this, Free Movement, Free People Rather Require Free Movement, and it's from Hannah Cox. And this is in response to these continued um, ideas that are being floated about, you know what we need is we need vaccine passports. And she says these are the latest in a long line of unusual terms we've all become familiar with over the last year, but she explains why they are problematic. She says the Washington Post reports the Biden administration is working to coordinate a national program that would require citizens to show proof of their vaccine status in order to travel or enter public spaces. But the administration has declined to answer specific questions about it. Officials have instead pointed to statements made by White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator Jeff Zients. Zients is overseeing the effort among government agencies involved with the work, largely driven by the Department of Health and Human Services and an office within it devoted to health information technology. Now, Zients said our role is to help ensure that any solutions in this area should be simple, free, open source, accessible to people both digitally and on paper and designed from the start to protect people's privacy. It's expected that the passports will come in the form of a smartphone application with paper downloads available for those without such technology. Now, the Biden administration's efforts, according to Hannah Cox, are being backed by a growing number of private businesses like uh, Norwegian Cruise Line and sports teams like the Miami Heat, who've said they will require documentation for some or all services. These developments have stirred vigorous debate among Americans. Celebrity Dr. Drew Pinsky, for example, recently drew backlash on social media after saying the vaccine passports would segregate people and strip them of their freedom to travel internationally. Here's what he said. He said these vaccine passports segregate people and strip them of their freedom to travel internationally. Vaccinations are important, and I encourage everyone to get the COVID vaccine. But how would you feel if international travel also required other vaccinations? So it's not like he you can't just say he's an anti-vaxxer and dismiss him out of hand like that. But, you know, here comes a guy to respond. Oh, this guy's a doctor and doesn't even know how many vaccines are required by scores of country for international travel. Interesting. Yeah, what kind of diseases exactly are you being, uh, you know, vac- vaccinated for, though? Might be a bit of a difference. Are they diseases that are survived by 99-something percent of the people who actually contract them? Get back to me when it's convenient for you, sir. Uh, but, I, but I really would like to know. Hannah Cox reports a recent survey found that 64% of Americans support placing limits on travel based on a person's health status. 64%? And yet she says others like Governor, uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis have moved to quash the idea. DeSantis recently called on the state legislature to draft permanent measures prohibiting such requirements. So while the debate over coercing the public to take vaccines has been quiet for some time, it's not new. 
The U.S. has a long history of requiring vaccinations for entry into public schools. Many employers, especially those in the medical field, have mandated employee vaccinations, too. OSHA, the regulatory agency of the Department of Labor, stands by such demands. Nor is it the first time the government has attempted to restrict travel and access to services based on vaccine status. Apparently through the early 1900s, travelers were often asked to show proof of having obtained the smallpox vaccine at ports of entry into the country. And during a series of outbreaks between 1898 and 1903, several states authorized compulsory vaccination, while others leaned on public and private institutions to pressure Americans into the vaccine. We're going to come back to her commentary here in just a few moments. Again, there is a link in the show notes so you can check it out at your leisure. We'll be right back. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I strive each and every day that I do this program to give you information that is uh, thought-provoking, I mean, sometimes I want to get a little dramatic. I'm dropping precision-guided truth bombs and disarming dangerous myths. But the truth of the matter is I'm just trying to get, I'm trying to make sense and get a good feel for what's actually going on around us without trying to scare people or make them angry or feel like they are utterly helpless. And I'm so grateful for the incredible pool of talent that I can draw from uh, the various news aggregator sites, the sites like the Foundation for Economic Education, fee.org. And they're amazing writers. We have a lot of resources to help us get a better understanding. And and it doesn't mean if you click on this, you are saying that you agree with everything. It just means you're willing to examine an informed point of view. What you do with that information, that's entirely up to you. Right now, I'm sharing an article from Hannah Cox. Free people require free movement. And she points out there are times in the past where governments restricted travel or access to services based on people's vaccine status. Back uh, between 1898 and 1903, there were several states that authorized compulsory vaccination. Others leaned on private and public institutions to pressure Americans to get the vaccine. This is particularly true with smallpox. In fact, one Kansas City newspaper, she says, wrote that show a scar, which was proof of the vaccine, was the official password for entry into lodges and other meetings. Now, as the country struggles to reopen, she says, and studies show that many Americans believe the virus is more deadly than it actually is. It's somewhat unsurprising to see this policy reemerge. But as with so many of the government's designs, such actions would have many unintended negative consequences. So here here she talks about the slippery slope. A quarter of Americans have already said they do not intend to take the vaccine. Far from incentivizing reluctant Americans to become vaccinated, vaccine passports actually play into conspiracy theories and could cause some people to become even more hesitant about the treatment. The passports also raise significant privacy issues and invoke past traumas of governmental abuse, specifically for people of color who were historically used for medical experimentation by the government. Finally, it almost goes without saying that a government requiring people to show their papers is a terrifying slippery slope that has previously led to great human rights violations. Americans have been conditioned to accept infringements on their free movement for well over a century. 
as the government has steadily increased regulation on where we live, travel, and work. But she says, keep in mind, it wasn't until World War I that we began to see things like passports at all, much less the extensive immigration controls, state residency requirements, and occupational licenses that hinder the buying and selling options of all our residents. History shows that these liberties, once surrendered, are hard to win back. Now, this is the part that some people may struggle with, but I think she's right. She says free, free movement is a natural right, which means it exists prior to and, and above government. It didn't flare into existence when government was created. It didn't uh, come into existence when some politician put words on paper. There, you now have freedom of movement. That's not how natural rights work. Hannah Cox says in his seminal work, The Wealth of Nations, economist Adam Smith said that there must be free movement for all in the system so that each man might seek the best opportunity for his labor or resources. Now, this is a basic economic principle in human right. If you're not free to move and seek safety, resources or the best opportunity for yourself, you are not truly free. And the significance of this principle was put on display over the past year. She says many Americans fled states with stringent lockdown restrictions and overflowing hospital beds to seek a better life for themselves and their families. Others were locked in their homes and forbidden from going anywhere. That should have been a wake-up call that caused Americans to reignite their defense of the freedom of, of movement. She says Americans do not need vaccine passports to return to normalcy. In fact, states where restrictions have already been eased, including populous ones like Texas and Florida, Economic and social activity has restarted, while deaths have remained on par or lower than states locked down. Now, she points out, freedom comes with responsibility, and large numbers of people are, willing, are willingly choosing to get the vaccine. Those who do not are accepting the risks they may incur and should not pose a threat to those who have received the treatment. And for people unable to receive vaccines, there's still the option to stay home, remain socially distanced, and take other precautions as they would for any other threat to their health. Ultimately, private businesses have the right to determine whom they will allow on their property and do business with. Businesses maintain property rights and freedom of association. They don't need the government to strong arm their customers on their behalf. Now, this is a debate that the free market is more than equipped to settle. Let businesses determine what's best for them, and consumers will decide which policies will earn their dollar. But she says, do not allow the government to continue stripping us of our right to free movement. Amen, sister. That is right on the money. It's a hard thing to, to swallow, though, right? Because there are stores that are saying, well, even though the mask mandate's going to be lifted in my home state of Utah, uh, the, the official mask mandate is supposed to disappear as of, I believe, this Saturday. But there's an awful lot of retailers out there. Nope, we're going to keep ours. One nice thing that I am seeing right now is that it seems like there's a ramping down of enforcement. And and I really liked uh, when, when I was... Uh, when I was visiting my daughter uh, this last weekend in Grand Junction, Colorado, Colorado's had some pretty strict mask mandates as well. I walked into Walmart with her and with my grandson and my wife, and somebody there was handing out masks. And they weren't insisting, they were like, take this. It was just, you know, handing it out. Would you like one? And I, I said, thank you. Took it in my hand, walked inside and stuck it in my pocket. And there were other masked people running around. It wasn't like I was the only one who did that. Um, but I thought, 
you know, that some people would say, well, Brian, you should have gotten the guy's face. Don't ever offer me a mask. Don't you ever do that. I do not do that. You know, and what would that have accomplished? I mean, if I was feeling frustrated, maybe I'd have a little outlet for my frustration. It's kind of like kicking the dog, though. The poor door greeter. He's, he's not there to, to pick on people. And I understand some people take it more seriously than others, but I thought it was an elegant solution on the part of Walmart. Yes, we would prefer that you wear a mask. We'll even make one available for you if uh, if you need it coming in. And rather than sit there and lecture the guy, I have no thank you. I don't want one or anything. I just took one. Who knows? Maybe it would come in handy at some point. By the way, I still have it. Actually, it's sitting in the uh, it's sitting in the door pocket. In my car, but, um, you know, I thought it was very nice of them to offer. There's an article I'm going to uh, also include in today's show notes that I thought was especially helpful in this regard. Look, I want to stand up for liberty. I want to stand up for my own rights every chance that I get. But I don't want to just do it like I'm not going to do a Patrick Henry style speech every time. Aha, this is my moment. You know, and off I go into some oration. Sometimes we just have to be able to do it in small ways and and be okay with that. Jeff Minnick, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, has a terrific article, Keeping Liberty Alive in an Age of Corona Vistas. And he says, a look around at our coronavirus-obsessed world leaves those of us still possessing common sense with one question. And that is, what on earth have we become? He says, this question arises when I look at videos like a pregnant Catholic mother refusing to wear a mask being cited for trespassing during a mass in Dallas, Texas. This young woman broke neither the mandates of the governor of that state nor of the bishop of that diocese, but nevertheless was reported to the police in the middle of mass by the pastor of her parish. One of the ushers reportedly shouted, arrest her, and then went to the parking lot to record her license plate number. Yes, there are male Karens out there. Three police officers, three, showed up to haul her out of mass and accuse her of violating the regulations of a business, i.e. the church. They then issued her a ticket for trespassing, forbidding her attendance at any future services at that church. Now, Jeff Minnick says, look, I'm not engaging in hyperbole when I say that some among us have lost their minds. Like fashionistas, those who devote themselves to the intricate workings of the fashion industry, we now have coronavistas. In our midst, uh, devoted to upholding the precise regulations which allegedly helped prevent the spread of the virus. By the way, just as an aside, one of these uh, was in full display on a Spirit Airlines flight a couple of days ago. Maybe you've seen the viral video. A family on board the plane, I think they had two children with them, one of them special needs, and then a little two-year-old, I think it was a little two-year-old girl. And the little girl is eating, so she is not wearing her mask. This is before takeoff, but here comes a flight attendant, recently empowered and feeling every bit of it, and kicked the family off the flight because their two-year-old would not keep that mask in place on her face. Now, before your outrage starts to build, let me tell you, Spirit Airlines actually did the right thing. They removed that flight attendant. In fact, I think they switched out the entire flight crew and allowed the family back on the flight. But what a needless moment of confrontation and delay for everybody else involved. And it was all because somebody was clicking their heels and trying to enforce those rules. Jeff Minnick is right. What exactly have we become? This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I was sharing an article from Jeff Minnick from intellectualtakeout.org, Keeping Liberty Alive in the Age of Coronavistas. You've heard of the fashionistas. Yeah, we've we've got our uh, people who are very obsessive about corona everything. In fact, he says here in Virginia, where he lives, the nonsense continues. Nearly everybody in the local grocery store wears a mask. If you want to buy a bottle of vodka from the ABC store, put on a mask. In the coffee shop and other restaurants he sometimes visits, he says... Patrons are required to wear a mask when entering those establishments, but may, but then may remove the mask throughout the course of their meal. Why is that? Does the virus only attack human beings on their feet? He says, my local library requires patrons to wear a mask. It also quarantines all returned books for three days. Now, for months, they quarantined books for five days. Now they've reduced that time. Were either of those book quarantine times based on science? I mean, if we can catch the virus from a book that the librarians shouldn't allow visitors like me to roam the library shelves, touching book after book. Meanwhile, he says, in a tiny convenience store off the beaten path in my town, no one, not the owners, not the employees, not the customers, wears a mask. And he says, I go there frequently for various supplies, and as far as I know, none of those folks have keeled over from COVID-19. Do country folks and rednecks know more than our experts? Thankfully, he says, it seems that some experts have not lost their minds and become coronavistas. Dr. Scott Atlas is one of them. And in an article written for Hillsdale College's imprimis, he assails the mainstream media and the medical establishment's advocacy of masks, closures, and lockdowns. He accuses publications like the Journal of the American Medical Association, the Lancet, the New England Journal of Medicine, and Science of being contaminated by politics. This is what Dr. Atlas says. Quote, I have been shocked at the unprecedented exertion of power by the government since last March, issuing unilateral decrees, ordering the closure of businesses, churches and schools, restricting personal movement, mandating behavior and suspending indefinitely personal freedoms. Second, he says, I was and remain stunned, almost frightened at the acquiescence of the American people to such destructive, arbitrary and wholly unscientific rules, restrictions and mandates. He goes on to say, with social media acting as the arbiter of allowable discussion and with continued censorship and cancellation of those with views challenging the accepted narrative, the United States is on the verge of losing its cherished freedoms. It's not at all clear whether our democratic republic will survive, but it is clear it will not survive unless more people begin to step up in defense of freedom of thought and speech, end quote. What do you think? Is that just hyperbole, or do you think he's telling the truth? Jeff Minnick says, Meanwhile, our shutdowns damaged our children's education and emotional development, restricted our religious practices, killed off tens of thousands of small businesses, brought a booming economy to its knees, and separated us all from one, separated all of us from one another. And he asks, Were these sacrifices worthwhile? Were they beneficial? We may never know the answers to these questions. What is perfectly clear, however, is that Atlas's conclusions are right on the money. Big tech, corporations, many of our universities and our federal and state governments have spent the last year silencing critics of their policies and usurping American liberties. He has a couple of quotes here, too, that uh, might ring a bell. Ben Franklin, those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. Or John Adams, in a letter to his wife, Abigail, liberty once lost is lost forever. 
Jeff Minnick says there's no magical formula to guarantee the preservation of our freedoms. But there are steps all of us can take to regain and keep our liberties. And listen to these suggestions, listening skeptically to the mainstream media and to government officials. I don't even listen to him that much, but when I do, it is. It's skeptically. He says voting, protesting to our elected leaders at all levels when our rights are trampled, engaging when possible in peaceful disobedience like that woman in church. These are but a few possibilities. Most of all, however, he says we must keep the fires of freedom burning in our hearts. It is that liberty which makes America unique. How do you keep that fire burning? Well, I think it starts with some understanding of the principles and practices of liberty. That takes some study. That takes effort. That takes sustained effort. I'm not asking you to do anything that I haven't been willing to do myself. And I speak from experience when I tell you it is worth it. It's worth knowing what you stand for. It's worth knowing who you are and why it's okay to stand up for these things. It makes it easier to take the attacks on your character, the snide remarks, the memes that uh, people will use to attack you. But you don't have to worry about it. You know, critics are, are so highly overrated in most of our minds. You realize if you have really struggled to come to an understanding of the truth, if you put in the necessary effort to understand what it is, you know, that, that you're contemplating, you've already won the toughest battle. You have nothing to prove to your critics. And even if you could prove it to them, they still wouldn't give you their approval. So don't worry about them. At, at worst, you know, what, what happens is they're going to draw people's attention to you who otherwise would have just been disinterested bystanders. And sometimes those people will catch on to the truth. So there's always a silver lining. I'm not saying it's fun, but I'm saying it's it's there. One final article. I won't go into the whole article here, but um, I've heard a lot of good reasons about getting into cryptocurrency. I think my friend Connor Boyack first introduced me to crypto about four years ago. And, uh, and I think he's probably feeling pretty smug right now because he was way ahead of the curve on this. But if you want to talk about getting into cryptocurrency, um, there are a number of different reasons why. I've never heard anybody make the case for why it's actually a very patriotic move until today. It's an article from Max Borders, published on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. And I'm just going to hit you with a couple of uh, excerpts from this. Max Borders says, if you listen to defenders of the U.S. dollar, you might get the idea that cryptocurrencies are only good for funding terrorism and hard drugs. Truth be told, I think the uh, U.S. dollar has done a pretty good job of funding both of those. But hey, you know. Moving on, when you consider that cryptocurrencies represent a pretty clear break with tradition, Max Border says a conservative might be inclined to stick with what's familiar. That's understandable. One of conservatism's hallmarks is skepticism of change that happens too quickly or threatens well-established institutions. In this way, many conservatives think the U.S. dollar is good enough. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. But he says, I want to make the case that the dollar is broken. In fact, he says, I want to persuade you that adopting cryptocurrency is an act of patriotism. Okay, I'm sensing maybe one or two people just sat up a little straighter in their chair. Go on. <laughs> he talks about uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen speaking of Bitcoin, who said, to the extent it is used, I fear it's often used for illicit finance. 
Now, Max Porter says we can expect more of this kind of rhetoric from those who see cryptocurrencies as a threat to the dollar's hegemony. This sort of rhetoric almost always precedes regulatory zeal. So in this case, regulation would be designed to keep people locked up in the dollar's matrix. Otherwise, how will authorities make the people clean up their messes? Remember, politicians created the money for the recent $1.9 trillion stimulus package out of thin air. This sent U.S. debt to GDP well past 100%. In order to pay off that debt, the choices are taxation or inflation. But never mind the debt. Yellen wants you to look over there instead. Bitcoin is extremely inefficient as a transaction medium, she says, as if Bitcoin were the only cryptocurrency and the U.S. Treasury and MasterCard are one and the same. She neglects to compare Bitcoin transmission to shipping stacks of dollar bills, which also happens to be a method preferred by terrorists and drug dealers. Yellen certainly doesn't want to talk about Bitcoin's utility as an investment vehicle, particularly as a hedge against inflation. Fealty to the dollar is fealty to her appointers. Now, he goes into how centralization, particularly in banking and monetary policy, leads to inflation. It means inflation. And then he talks about what links or what slinks rather at the bottom of the red ink ocean. He goes into the programmable properties of Bitcoin. And these are a few of the things that I wanted to share with you. He goes, here are some of the key features of cryptocurrency. It's sovereign and permissionless. It's anonymous, secure. It's a medium of exchange. The transaction speed is a, is a plus. It's deflationary, stable. Transaction fees are low. It's a store of value. It's liquid. There are smart contracts. There's tokenization. And again, he goes into far greater detail on every single one of these. Bottom line is, cryptocurrencies are designed to create financial sovereignty for everyone. And he says if conservatives continue to stay locked in the dollar's matrix, they will be playing into the hands and plans of the people they oppose most. I'll have a link to this article in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Please check it out. This is The Brian Hyde Show.